a successful client for me would be where no one ever notices that I'm working with them. There's probably a stigma in the sense that it could be viewed as inauthentic if, you know, it's supposedly this person's Twitter account, but someone else is, is writing it for them. I mean, I think that's a problem if the tweets or the content comes off as not matching that person's voice. This is Media Moves, the podcast for executives to make sense of the perpetually moving media landscape. I'm Adam Ryan. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Adam. And by the time this is live, uh, the world knows that that you are now part of uh, the work we crew and uh, we're so happy to have you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited. Thanks for having me on board. Yeah, let's do it. It's going to be fun. So we'd love to tell everyone a little bit about who you are. Most people have probably seen your work and not known it, but uh, not everyone knows who you are. We want to want to give a little background. Yeah, so I'm most well known for starting the John W. Rich parody Twitter account uh, that has about 170,000 followers. I mean, most people don't really know that know me from that because it's a anonymous parody account. But I started that about two years ago, and now I, for the last year or so, I've been working as a ghostwriter for various Twitter personalities and brands, trying to help them get their brand out there on Twitter. Amazing. So you, John W. Rich, let's get into that for a second. It's essentially an old man. What was the inspiration? What made you do it? Was it always full-time? Did you start as a hobby? would love to hear the background. Yeah, so it actually started right when COVID started. Um, I started it early April of 2020 when those lockdowns were happening, when you know, I, had, I had nothing else to do because everything was closed, couldn't go anywhere. So the last the couple years before that, I had always liked to be on Twitter. I had a bunch of accounts that I followed, but I never really contributed until April of 2020 when I thought, hey, I should give it a try, see if I'm, if nothing else, it'll fill some of my time that I now have. Honestly, I don't really know how I came up with the character. I think I just immediately had that idea to have it be an old man who had kind of stumbled into success, but didn't really understand what he was doing. I set up the profile, just thought it would be something fun to do whenever I had some free time. But it ended up becoming really popular. I think in the first month or so, I had 5,000 followers. So it just grew way more quickly than I thought it would. It really was a hobby for the first eight months or so. So the rest of that year, I would just do it for fun. I did spend a lot of time doing it, but there was no money in it. I think especially, I, I think that's we'll get into that a bit more about how much Twitter has changed. But even back then, only two years ago or so, no one really made money off of a parody account at all. Uh, I remember trying a couple of different experiments and it was like, you know, tough to even make $10 doing anything on there, even if I had 20,000 followers. So for the next eight months or so, I, I just experimented and had fun with it. And then it got to the point where it actually could be a business. I made the mistake at first of trying to build like a website with, you know, basically a, a blog where I'd get a bunch of people to visit it and then realize that, you know, I'll probably need millions of viewers to actually make any money off this. I had a few articles at first that did really well, 50,000 or so views. And, you know, I made like five bucks off of ads. So I, I figured after the first few months, like, okay, this isn't really the way to go. 
then I discovered ghostwriting kind of the end of 2020 and that other companies would pay me a lot more to help with their content. Do you give credit to the authenticity of like no monetization for the success of the account? Like for those first eight months, like you had to stick to just like being like having fun? Yeah, I think that definitely helped with the growth. I mean, it it would have been possible to keep growing it if I was promoting other things, but I think that helped because I could just focus on what did well. I could focus on what the audience liked. I could focus on making the next viral tweet that would give me another couple thousand followers. Whereas if I was maybe monetizing it in the early days, you know, it, it could have leveled off at a certain point when people realized, eh, you know, some of this stuff's funny, but I also don't want to sit through all these ads or I don't want to constantly be pitched something. So I do think the best way to grow is just figure out what works well with your audience and then just keep doing that. And I think, you know, typically ads or something else like that might level off the growth. And I think, I mean, I'm, I, I do think a lot of the growth really was just because I had a lot of fun with it. And that was the only thing going on with the account is just a place for people to have fun. What is so interesting, though, is that John W. Rich, if you're you know running a media company, listening to this, you're like, this is a fucking parody account. Like, why are we talking about this? But what you did was you like in in many ways, you built the confidence of your playbook and then you started to apply it to real life people and CEOs and your clients. And out of your clients, what do you what percentage of the you know 12 to 15 people you work with are CEOs? I can't even think of one right now that isn't. So maybe all of them. So when you think about that, you're taking this playbook of a parody account of a guy that gets made fun of, but you're having a ton of fun with it. It's growing an audience. And you're saying, wait, 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 we can do this in a credible way to build your own audience as CEO. How hard were your first few clients to get? I don't think they were difficult at all, but <laughs> that's because it was, it was almost a year after starting my original account. So I... I really didn't go out and say, hey, I, you know, I want to try and get clients. It was more like the first couple actually came to me and said, hey, we'd like your account. You know, are you open to helping with my content? That's always been nice for me is like I didn't start the John Rich account to get clients for my ghostwriting service. It was the opposite where I started the John Rich account. It did really well. And then almost a year later started offering the service. So the John Rich account really, it's surprising because I think a lot of people, Obviously, my, my clients don't want to pay for becoming the next John Rich because, yeah, it's a parody account. It's all jokes. It would be hard to actually promote something. But I think a lot of my clients saw that I'm just good at Twitter. And I, you know, obviously, I don't do the exact same things for their accounts because they don't want their audience to think everything they tweet is a joke. But I, I had this proof of concept that I know what I'm doing on Twitter. And then it was easy for, for people to say, OK, I'll hire this guy to, to help with my account. I think it's an interesting dynamic because there's, especially back when I started the account, almost no serious accounts were really, I guess the term shitposting is probably around, but you really didn't hear it very often. Or if you did, it was strictly about parody accounts. Serious people didn't actually do that. So it's kind of an interesting shift in the last two years or so that anyone can kind of be a parody account, even if they have a serious persona, because... I mean, the big reason people come to Twitter is to laugh and to joke around. So I think a lot of people want that for their own account, just in a little bit of a scaled back way compared to John Rich. 
Well, and, and connecting these dots a little bit, one of the beliefs that we've always had is work week is there's been this trend in the workplace that, you know, you used to wear suits and now you wear sneakers and V-necks and like, you don't lose credibility today. Like no one walks in with a, you know, V-neck and sneakers into a meeting and you're like, oh, this person's a joke. No, it doesn't work that way where, you know, 25, 30 years ago, it might've been that way. And we've been saying content is moving towards the same direction where it's like, it's not that it, you don't look nice. Like, yeah, if you like look like you haven't showered in two weeks, like it's still like messiness and sloppiness is not credible, but like being informal is okay. And content creation has been going the same exact route. And we've believed this for a long time. People like Trung have shown how much fun you can have with like serious topics while also like being hilarious. And you're doing this. Uh, it leads to, uh, on uh, September, uh, early September of last year, I reached out to you and said, what's up, man? Would love to talk sometime about becoming a client because <laughs> I kept seeing your, your tweets and I just thought it was hilarious. And as you've grown and you've started to have the success, what has the feedback been for your clients? Because renewal rates have been good. You've kept a lot of people on. You've worked with people for a while. What's the feedback that you're getting from the CEOs that you're working with? I think a lot of the work happens at the beginning. It's very challenging to learn someone's unique voice. I mean, anyone who wants to grow their Twitter presence, they have a unique voice and perspective in a certain way. They would say all sorts of certain things. So I think, I think my service has been pretty sticky just because if after the first month or two, I can learn their voice well, if I can write for them, then there's no reason to stop after that. That's always the biggest challenge with any client, though, is is figuring out, okay, what are all the rules for their voice? How how do they like to write things? What are their unique thoughts? How do we want to portray them on Twitter? So most of the feedback, and I mean, this is easier with this service because I can always just say, hey, is this your voice? Yes or no? And they can give me some feedback. And then I kind of learn the specifics of, of how they, they like to say things. It's interesting too, because I think with Twitter, you really do want to carve out your own unique voice. Um, you don't necessarily, you know, I've seen people who say, okay, I want to be, they'll see some popular account. They'll say, I want to be like that guy. But then if you basically, if that's all you're going to do is just copy someone else's account, it usually doesn't go very well because, you know, that person's already popular. People already know who they are. You're not really adding anything to the conversation by just mimicking them. So obviously, you know, I'm a good example of this. My follower count after working with you like doubled. Um, I had tons of tweets go viral and the credibility that you want on social for like that, that vanity metric started to work. And I was too busy to do this. So it seemed successful, but there are some other, as I've told you, there's some other very quantitative metrics that have to do with the business that drove real dollars for us as ROI. How often do you hear that from your clients? Like, is it actually driving revenue in the door or leads or uh, organic growth? What, what, what kind of feedback do you have? That's definitely something I, I usually try to incorporate into my plan for a client because I know that just becoming popular on Twitter alone is probably not enough to justify spending money on this service because, yeah, it's cool. But at the end of the day, it needs to translate to, to something else. So. I usually ask my clients, you know, what's the one or two things you're trying to get out of Twitter? The most common is they're just trying to build a newsletter. So they're trying to own their their audience in some sort of way, or it's leads for their business. That's why it's, you know, two different types of clients, really. One that they're not necessarily selling anything to their audience, but they're building some sort of media business for themselves. So they want the newsletter so they can either 
sell ads or monetize some other way later, or they want new leads. I guess the other thing is, you know, some of my clients just want connections with either investors, other business owners. They just want to network with other high level people. Um, so Twitter is usually a good way to do that. If your content, it's pretty crazy the types of people that are on Twitter that will follow you if, if you have good content. Even with my account, there's been tons of people that I never would have been able to meet or chat with otherwise if I you know didn't have this content that people enjoyed. I think on my John Rich one, last time I counted, I think there was five billionaires who follow me and I've DM'd with most of them now, which is would never have been able to get in that's the same so room. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's another thing that, that people want. So I usually I try to ask my clients, you know, what's the one or two things that, that you would like? I usually can't track it. You know, if it's their newsletter subscribers, often I just won't really have access to that. Or uh, so I'll just basically check in every so often, like our, you know, our newsletter subscribers growing. Are you getting good leads? I think especially with my clients that want more leads for their business, that's usually, um, it's really not super difficult usually because I can focus on what the content that will do well, will build up the audience. And then every once in a while, if I really need to, I can do some sort of, I guess on Twitter, people will call it like a shill tweet where they, you know, post something like, Hey, if you're looking for this service, click here and fill out the form. But if we've built up the audience enough, usually we'll get, I can do that as kind of a last resort and people will, and we'll get some leads from that. Yeah. I mean, for my newsletter, my growth doubled once we started working together. Uh, and I said this math today, but I was starting to grow. I was growing like, uh, you know, 100, 200 subscribers a week and started going to three, 400 working with you. Uh, we value a newsletter subscriber, let's say at like 10 bucks. Well, that's like two grand a week. I was just making, you know, making up and growth of the newsletter. It was pretty amazing. And I think that's what's crazy is all the success, five billionaires, DMing, leads, revenue, clout, all the access that you get. But there's a lot of hate. Like there's a huge stigma about ghostwriting. Why do you think that is? It's funny because I uh, <laughs> a successful client for me would be where no one ever notices that I'm working with them. And I, I will say that's one tricky part of the business because clients will often give me good referrals, but I can't publicly say, hey, I, you know, it's hard to build up credibility when I can't really publicly say who my clients are, but they don't want me to usually. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think as far as that stigma goes, it's weird because I, I feel like people know that about, you know, think of any big business personality. They're super active on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like YouTube, everywhere. So obviously people know that they're not doing all of that themselves. Plus, if they run a business, they're busy with that. So they're probably not the one tweeting every single time. I don't know if people actually don't know that, but I think like content creators know that that's not true. Right. Yeah. But I don't know if like the average Joe really. That's true. People may just not that. think about it really. It's an interesting dynamic where I think people are, you know, maybe if they think about it, they know, okay, well, they have a marketing person that helps with this. There's probably a stigma in the sense that it could be viewed as inauthentic if, you know, it's supposedly this person's Twitter account, but someone else is is writing it for them. I mean, I think that's a problem if the tweets or the content comes off as, as not matching that person's voice. Maybe it's just because I know how this stuff works, but I'll see someone who maybe I know them personally, or I've watched a lot of their videos, and then their tweets are way different. And I'm thinking, okay, they probably don't write those themselves, and it's coming off as not really their voice. 
that kind of ties into why my biggest thing is always just figuring out what is the client's voice and how do I continually write in their voice so that it doesn't feel like someone else is writing them. And I think that's another important thing is for ghostwriter, you really have to know the the topic that you're covering. So for me, like I've had a few people reach out who say, oh, you know, can you write about whatever, something I really don't know much about and I usually have to pass because if I don't, like obviously with startups, tech, finance, Twitter, I love that stuff. So I can usually write for a lot of different people. But if it was a topic I I don't really know, it probably would come off as, oh, you know, who's writing these tweets? This doesn't really sound like the person I follow. It sounds like someone who doesn't quite get what's going on. The like line that you have to draw, because there's also for me, it was like pushing the past of being uncomfortable a little bit too. Like you just started being funny. You were shit posting. I'd never done that before. I always wanted to do it. But I think like one of the causes, right? And we, I did a thing today for our work week of a why ghostwriting and, and the importance of it. And the history, you know, George Washington did not write his famous farewell speech. He had Alexander Hamilton write it. Uh, we talked about Jimmy Fallon not writing his own monologue. Uh, and uh, many, you know, goes, uh, 25% of New York Times bestsellers for nonfiction, ghostwritten completely. It's something that's used constantly with success. And you have to ask yourself why, and it's either time or fear. And I think with social, it's like that second one is just as much as the first one. It's like, it's hard to like have the, the actual courage to hit publish. And you're like, oh, am I going to get made fun of? And that's just something that people deal with. And you kind of help them get through that. Twitter is different than any other channel. Probably my most successful clients or like my most successful engagements are people that already have some sort of following or some other sort of content besides Twitter, but they just don't really know how to use Twitter. So I've usually been able to go in and say, okay, like your content on your newsletter or your YouTube channel is really, really good. And here's how we can just quickly make it do well on Twitter. Um, just because Twitter has a few, you know, you need to be shorter, you need to be get to the point quicker. There's all sorts of formats that work well on Twitter that wouldn't really work well in other places. I do think that ghostwriting is in the broader public. It's, it's more accepted. Like, yeah, we know that, that celebrities who write their autobiographies, it's usually not them writing it, but we know, you know, it says written with whoever on the cover. So I, I think it'll probably be more accepted on, on all types of content that they probably, as long as it's their original thoughts, it, there's probably someone turning those thoughts into tweets or turning them into Instagram graphics. Yeah. And pivoting to, you know, you've, you talked about your business. You took John W. Rich, this really successful agency business. Now you're entering a new phase. Uh, you're joining Workweek, helping us scale our creators as well as, uh, build out a new, new product line. What drew you into the situation? What made it attractive? I know there are numerous people you had talked to that came to you about the agency. What was something that kind of, uh, that made it an easier decision? Well, number one, the kind of thesis that you put out at the beginning of this episode totally aligns with how I feel about content, that it's becoming more casual, that very serious CEOs can goof around on Twitter and it can be good for their brand. So I liked that part. So the second part is as this, as my business has grown, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, which parts am I good at and which parts do I like to do and which are the parts that I don't like to do so much? 
So when I realized that, you know, I really like writing tweets, making content, making new, either making content for a new client or coming up with some other parody account, I really like doing that type of stuff. Not so much the operations and the sales part. So once I talk to you, it's kind of this perfect arrangement, like, okay, I can focus way more on just doing more of the writing, helping either work with creators or helping more clients. And then frankly, I think that with you guys just being, having an actual sales team is a big thing because I've, I've just been doing sales on my own from, you know, leads I get in and I'm, I'm okay at it. And I think I can sell it pretty well, but obviously you guys have some, have a lot of clients I probably wouldn't be able to reach if, if I did it on my own. You sold me. That's for sure. All over DM too. I, I, I don't even know how many of your clients came over DM, but I'd have to guess at least over half. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, almost every client is they either see me on Twitter and message me or they're a referral from a current client. I don't think I've had any, I don't even know how else I would have gotten any because I don't do any outbound sales or anything like that. So that's how yeah. every single, and what's, what's nice too, I think with this service, I've had so many clients that I've sold that I've never even talked to on the phone or in a Zoom or anything like that, which is kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. I think it's, and speaking of which, I think that ties into just the business world being more casual. I think even a couple of years ago, that was kind of unheard of to have an email, just an email conversation and someone sending you, you know, several thousand dollars for whatever. It's, it's kind of crazy how uh, probably half my clients are like that, where we basically didn't even speak on the phone or in a meeting. We just emailed or, or chatted on Twitter. I went through our, our messages today. I don't think we've we ever talked on the phone until we talked about working together on a deeper level with yeah. Workweek. But so there's a lot of people running media companies here. And I think uh, listening to this podcast and, and one of the takeaways that I think uh, is most important and something that we've talked about a lot, but it's really difficult to be successful on like multi-platforms. And the thing that you helped me with so much is I spend a shit ton of time writing my newsletter each week and my, and, and preparing for my podcast. And it's the two pieces of content that I like bury myself into. I try to make them as best as possible. And some of it just grows organically of, Oh, this person subscribed. They liked it. They forwarded it podcast kind of same thing. But what you started to do was actually take that content and disperse it other in other ways distribute it, which also kept things very authentic because it wasn't that you were just making things funny or making shit posting memes and things like that on my account, which helped it grow. And I thought it was hilarious. You also were just helping me get my message out to more places. And I think that's a, that's a big part of what's missing with media companies. How much of that, when you think about your clients of the folks that you're taking content that's already existing versus making new content, how is that different for you? I totally agree. That's kind of one of the biggest opportunities here is that, okay, well, think of any media company, the way you talk on YouTube will be different than the way you talk on Twitter. So if you're only, you know, I think um, a big mistake some people make is they have an amazing newsletter, but then they just really make no effort to put it to adapt that content to other channels. Yeah, for my clients, a lot of them, you know, they have a good following on a newsletter or somewhere else, and they just haven't really put much effort into Twitter. Um, and then I know all these these formats. I know how to take that content and make it do well on Twitter to then direct people back to their newsletter or to whatever their other long form content is. Almost every single tweet, 
that I'm creating for one of my clients, I'm never completely creating that from scratch. It's always something, it's always based off something they said in their newsletter or somewhere else. I might be simplifying it a little bit just because on Twitter, people like things that are very simple. They like to know what you're saying within five seconds or they their attention goes elsewhere. So usually I'm taking some other idea or some thought for my client, turning it into something I know will do well on Twitter. I think what's interesting too is that a lot of things by, well, what I've seen with my clients is that by getting on Twitter, they can unlock this new audience that they wouldn't have found otherwise. And I think it's funny, even if you know people behave differently on Twitter, so it could be the same person who found them on LinkedIn, but there's all these other people who are on Twitter that will respond differently to different types of content. So, you know, maybe they saw my client on LinkedIn and just scrolled right past it. But on Twitter, maybe for whatever reason, it caught their eye and they started following on Twitter. And I guess the idea is that you'll have this top of funnel of a bunch of people who find you on Twitter, and then they'll trickle down and a certain number of them will eventually get deeper into your content and follow you everywhere for all your insights. The thing that I learned with you, right? You do a lot of recreating this content for me off my podcast and newsletters and just honestly just saves time and you repackage it for the platform. And then the other thing we started doing, which was fun, is you started doing what I call these like infotainment threads on like crazy topics. The most popular one thus far has been around the friends negotiating their contract. And those tend to just have way bigger reach. How do you think about the balance of like having very kind of like insidery stuff where you're trying to like spread it out versus like way more broad top of funnel? I guess the main reason you might do those kind of infotainment, more general information ones if, is if you want to have a larger like mass appeal. So some of my clients just don't want to do that because, you know, they either want to network with investors or network with other CEOs. They don't really care about having 100,000 followers. So that would be... Reason number one is if you're trying to have a mass appeal, I mean, just number one, you have to cover more topics and you have to put out more content. So it's very difficult to do that if if all your content has to specifically be like your unique experiences or stories. It's good to mix in some other kind of infotainment type stuff that's related to your industry. But there's kind of infinite amounts of stories like that, like the friend's salary negotiation that you could come up with. I tend to think of it as, you know, for someone like you, you'd want to have that be a big piece of it, but probably not more than 50%. You want to be known as like this voice in the media landscape. So if too much of your content is like general stories about other media businesses, you almost become like too general of an account. People don't really come to it for your opinion. They just come to it for, for stories that don't relate to you. So I'm usually kind of careful about things like doing the infotainment too much because you don't want to become one of those accounts that's just, I mean, I would say on the far end of that, there's like Uber facts is like, it's basically just, you know, constant stream of, oh, did you know this? Here's an interesting tidbit. But if you become too much like that, no one cares about your actual personal opinion or who you are. And it actually has like a negative appeal because once you start inserting your opinion, I was like, wait, I don't follow this for this. <laughs> right, what, exactly. What's What's so funny is that like ghostwriting on the surface is so simple. There's nothing profound about it. It's something that's been around for literally centuries. It was created in 500 BC, uh, you know, thousands of years. It's been used for the test of time of leaders. 
But what makes it great is when you actually have a strategy in place. And it's like hearing you talk right now, right? That's what you're thinking about. You're like, what are the goals of the clients? What are the goals of the brands? Am I going to make this mass appeal? I'm going to make this insidery. Am I going to shill leads based on what it is? Like, what is it? And that's, that's to me, the, is what makes you so great at this, but also how ghostwriting scales to new areas that it doesn't exist is it's people listening to the goals and the person and then going from there. That's one nice thing about media is that the trends are actually a lot, not always, but the trends are a lot slower to catch on than you might think, because it's, it's funny that Twitter's, you know, been around for a, a decent bit, like 13 or 14 years. And people are just now saying, hey, Twitter's great for business or, you know, great for building a serious business media brand which it's, I think I was on Twitter like 12 years ago and it wasn't, it was just a place to get right. sports news or whatever. Yeah. And so it's funny that it's, you know, people act like it's, oh, it's this huge trend, but you know, you really could have seen that coming from years ago and it still feels like we're kind of early in that trend, even though it's, it's been happening for years. I think that's one interesting um, aspect of Twitter and that it's, it's exciting that now I'm kind of this mass the, the masses are waking up to, hey, you know, we can talk casually about business. We don't have to, not everything has to be a 50 page boring white paper or something like that. I love it. And that's, this is to kind of tell the story of what uh, attracted us is not only the alignment on thesis, the case study that we built with me and, and how it helped me scale and grow and all that good stuff. But it's exactly what you just talked about is like being on the front edge of trying new things, of being active, having someone think about this. We like to compare work week all the time to the play Hamilton. It was like, look, Lin-Manuel was like not hanging the lights and painting the sets, right? Like everyone has a role to play to create a masterpiece. And like John W. Rich has a, has a role to play at work week. And it, it makes me super amped. As a closing note, I'd love to hear five, 10 years from now, what's success look like for ghostwriting in general, as an industry and, and for you? As an industry, one thing I've kind of thought of is, is if there's this category, I guess you could either call it a ghostwriting service or like a content agency. I feel like if that category is super well known, or it's just as well known as like an SEO agency or a or a digital marketing agency, I feel like that would be a success because right now it feels like not many people are doing that, but it could be a, a huge market. For myself personally, I mean, I'd like to be part of, of making ghostwriting content agency idea um, much more well-known. What's cool for me is that I get to work on, I get to work with all sorts of different people in different types of businesses. And, you know, I can do it for a couple months and help launch someone into this, like having a, a Twitter career, basically. I don't have like a number of people I want to do that with or anything like that. But I think if, if five or 10 years from now, I'm still working with new types of people all the time, I think that would be pretty cool because then I'm, I don't know, I think the, the way I work, I like to work on different things. You know, I get to work with this certain person for a month or two or, you know, six months and help figure out their content strategy. And then I can do the same with, with someone else. I think for me, it would just being able to work with interesting, cool people for the next five or 10 years would be a huge success. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're going to have a huge influence of helping also 
raise the voice of authority of a lot of people that deserve it and earn it and working towards it. And like, you're giving them more time to, to focus on what they're good at. And while you hopefully get to have a lot of fun. And so, uh, I'm so, so happy you're here at work week. I, I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of folks listening to this, if you're interested in ghostwriting services for you or the executives in your brand, uh, feel free to reach out to Charlie and, uh, we can take it from there. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me on Adam. Yeah, absolutely. Where can we follow you, Charlie, if they don't already? Yeah, so on Twitter, my John Rich account, my username is Coked Up Options. So <laughs> I just wanted I just I just wanted to hear you say it. <laughs> um, my personal one's a little more tame. You can follow Charlie W Rich is my username on, on Twitter. <laughs> the to end this on a funny note, when we were drafting up Charlie's contract, he was like is it just John W. Rich or is it the other rich fam- family members like his mistress and wife? It's pretty good. So follow the whole family if yeah, you haven't it. yet. And uh, Charlie, thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay ahead of media's next move, then make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. I'll see you next time.